I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you, part of the Agora Podcast Network. Today, we have an exciting interview for you. We had a couple of listener requests come in. People are interested in the issue of inequality income inequality and wealth inequality and so we set off to do a little research and sort of get our heads around what direction we should be taking the the conversation in and came across this article published by the urban institute and we've uh, interviewed two folks from the urban institute before they do really exceptionally high quality work uh came across this article about home ownership and was interested to learn how much of the broader topic of inequality is really tied up within this one more specific issue of homeownership. So we reached out to one of the authors of the paper, Elena McCargo, who we will be interviewing today. Elena McCargo is a vice president for housing finance policy at the Urban Institute, where she focuses on management, development, and strategy for the Housing Finance Policy Center. She has over 20 years of experience in housing finance, uh, policy, and financial services. She has worked in both the private, public, and nonprofit sectors on different sorts of policies and research programs to improve access to housing and mortgage finance. Before she was at the Urban Institute, Elena McCargo was head of CoreLogic Government Solutions, which worked with federal and state government agencies, uh, sponsored enterprises, think tanks, and universities in order to deliver data analytics, and technology solutions to support housing and consumer policy research. Before that, Elena held leadership roles with Chase Bank and Fannie Mae, managing portfolios, different policy efforts, and mortgage servicing transformation alignment. Uh, from 2008 to 2011, she was an agent of the U.S. Treasury Department on housing programs, including making home affordable and hardest-hit funds. And she's also served on a number of nonprofit boards and committees. So really enjoyed having this conversation with Elena. It kind of made us think about the issue of inequality from a brand new angle, which is really something that we enjoy doing here at Reconsider. So enjoy the interview. Welcome, dear listeners, to another very exciting episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And today's episode is particularly exciting because we have a very special guest. We have sort of twisted some arms and begged and cajoled and possibly bribed our way into being able to get uh, Elena McCargo on the show with us. Elena, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we're really excited to chat with you today because we actually got a listener request a little while ago asking us to talk about really an important issue, which is income inequality and wealth inequality, but specifically how that is divided across racial terms in the US. And I came across your piece, the Urban Institute, which seemed like it was an outcropping of a roundtable discussion that happened specifically focusing on home ownership. And it just struck me because it is not an issue that I had thought about related to this particular topic before. So I, I'm curious just to provide a little context for folks. What was the nature of this roundtable discussion? Who was involved and how did this paper come to be? Sure. Well, we have been really for the past two years doing a lot of research on this topic of uh, wealth 
uh, race and sort of equality across the board uh, here at the Urban Institute. And that last November, we convened a small group of stakeholders that you know, really wanted to kind of tackle this issue that had been uh, parts of organizations that have been dealing with this issue. And we, um, this included the, the National Association of Realtors, the National Association of Real Estate Brokers, which is the oldest real estate broker, um, black real estate brokerage firm or um, a trade association. And then um, a whole host of civil rights groups, uh, lending institutions, and and um, and uh, nonprofits that were really um, kind of out there in the in the universe doing a lot of really good work uh, from advocates to uh, policymakers. So um, we all came together to have this conversation. Um, we've been calling it the roundtable. It's been a series of conversations that have gone on now since last November, and 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 then um, uh, we finally put out a paper that sort of summarized all the great conversations at that roundtable. And for folks who haven't had the benefit yet of reading the paper, and we will, of course, as always, put a link to this in our show notes. So listeners, go check it out when you have the chance to read the full thing. What were just some of the high-level findings? What what were some of the conclusions that you folks arrived at? First and foremost, uh, we focused, just to give you a little bit more context, we really focused in our first paper on the black homeownership gap. One of the things that we've been evaluating has been sort of racial disparity across the board between black and white, Hispanic and white, Asian Americans. We've been looking kind of across the gamut at kind of trends and what's been going on. And one of the things that we really, you know, focus on is homeownership as a critical wealth building source for economic stability. And uh, looking at the black homeownership rate, that the gap between blacks and whites from a homeownership perspective, has been very large for a long time uh, and appears to be growing at this point in time, which was something that, frankly, is kind of alarming. And so we um, wanted to dig deeper to understand why that was and, frankly, why the black homeownership rate compared to all other races is the one that continues to be on the decline or stagnant in some markets and kind of what's causing that and what might be some things that can be done to try to mitigate that and are there policy levers that we could potentially pull to fix that. So we've um, essentially, this first paper outlines five key things or themes that we think policymakers that are interested in looking at and solving this problem might want to take a look at. So the foundations of the paper really focus around the five issues and they are really quickly looking at uh, tackling housing supply constraints and the affordability crisis across the nation. Essentially, we don't have enough inventory of housing that is affordable for the people that want to buy housing right now. Uh, so that's number one. Um, the second thing is making sure that the housing finance system, so the, the FHA program, the VA program that supports homeownership, Danny Mae and Freddie Mac, that those programs are available and accessible and equitable. And so that's definitely a key pillar that we'll talk more about later. And then the third is ensuring that we um, advance policy solutions at the local level. And that just involves understanding the fact that housing policy is, while while a national issue, uh, is really solvable at the local level and the, and the interventions needed are really local. You always hear that the the um, the phrase that housing is local and it really that matters too at the policy le- level we can talk more about that too and then looking at the um, current renting population uh, particularly the mortgage ready millennial population and those are folks that are earning enough of an income in their market uh, appear to have a good enough credit score and could be homeowners but are still renters and then finally really looking at sustainability because the homeownership rate is not just a matter of getting people to buy new homes, but it's also very much an issue of making sure the people that do buy homes actually can keep them. So those are the five kind of major themes, and, and we can go into much detail on all of them. And so when when we're reading the output of this, which of course is linked on the show notes, so list, dear listeners, you all can go and take a look as well. One of the things we saw is that you know small dollar mortgages, uh, in addition to all the other issues, I, I, I kind of just wanted to pick on some of them that I found that that ha- got my brain a thinking. And and you know, small dollar mortgages were mentioned, and and it seems like it's a either undeveloped or or totally or or underdeveloped market. And you know, Xander and I have both come from the startup world, so our immediate thought is, well, sure, surely there there could be some fintech startup that could come fill this space for small dollar mortgages. 
and or you know credit unions or something like that. Like money is money, and and people like to make it. Are you aware of any systemic challenges or reasons that have kept the small dollar mortgage market from being serviced? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things I mentioned in our five pillars was that um, housing issues are very local and policy solutions are very localized. The small dollar issue for the mortgage market is is very local because obviously that is not very much of an issue for, say, San Francisco, California, for example. But um, but there are markets all around the country that have really low cost, affordable homes that could be purchased by first time home buyers, uh, millennials, and the like, but aren't really accessible to them because they don't have the cash to the access to financing for those types of properties. So we've done some research and have really looked at this in the in the in the context of the racial homeownership gap, because many of the markets where uh, black homeownership in particular, um, you know, and and where there's a larger black population um, also tend to be markets that have some lower cost, more affordable housing stock. Markets like, for example, Memphis, Tennessee, Detroit, Michigan, Cincinnati, Ohio, Cleveland, St. Louis. So those are, there's a number of markets across the country that, that really do have affordable really good, decent housing that could be purchased, but it's really difficult for people that are low to moderate income to have access to that because they can't get a loan. And so to your question about the market, um, the problem is that it's really expensive for lenders to originate loans to you know in, in the small dollar space. And I know that sounds kind of crazy because they're small loans, but if you if you talk to any lender out there, they would pretty much tell you that the cost for them to originate and service a mortgage that they originate for $70,000 um, is essentially the same as it is for a property that's $700,000. And so the incentives and the economics really don't work out well when you start to think about and sort of unpack all the costs and fees and everything else that are involved in lending at the lower end of the market. And therefore, what we found is that really for any property under $70,000, only one in four of those are likely to have a mortgage. All the rest are purchased by cash buyers. And often those cash buyers aren't owner occupants. So they're typically investors or someone who would go in, purchase the property, maybe fix it up and then rent that property out and and then leave that property unavailable to someone who could have potentially purchased it. And and frankly, the rents tend to be a lot higher than what a purchase would have been right. um, on these lower on the lower end of the market, making it sort of an, another sort of a different kind of affordability challenge. So so there's definitely room for and a lot of people thinking about how to make and create a more robust small dollar mortgage market. The only thing I want to dig in further on that is, you know, I, I, now my, I guess my credit is decent, but I do get kind of out of the blue offers for, you know, and I'm a small business owner. So I get out of the blue offers for credit lines of, you know, 15 to, you know, $200,000 all the time. You know, someone is reaching out and saying, you know, please take my money and then pay it back at some interest rate. And so, it makes me that makes me immediately imagine that there is something about mortgages that ha- means that there is a higher cost of loan origination versus something like a small business credit line or a you know a personal credit line is there anything either in the, like the regulatory structure or or just kind of the nature of the beast that changes the game yeah absolutely i mean the mortgage market and getting a mortgage loan is they're far more complex proposition than getting a personal loan or you know just putting the putting putting a purchase on on a credit card or anything like that. So I think the, the there is uh, there are definitely regulatory factors that come into play. There is absolutely also consumer protections because we're talking about you know this is collateralized debt. You know a, a home is typically a very valuable asset. And so the things that need to go in place to ensure that that property is secured uh, in a way that protects the consumer, but also protects the risk for the bank uh, and, and potential investors, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac or insurers like FHA who are um, holding that asset. I think it's really important that you that folks understand there's a huge difference between um, that and just sort of personal lending that one might do for thirty, forty thousand dollars to purchase a home and for cash. So I think I think there's definitely more to the mortgage transaction. But it also speaks to something that I think is really important, which is 
that the mortgage transaction as we have always known mortgage transactions to be might be more than one needs to purchase a low balance property. There might be more regulatory hurdles and fees and things that are built into those transactions that are mortgage related that may not be necessary in a smaller transaction in that there, again, is where I think there's an opportunity to look at innovating and potentially looking at you know new products that could support getting homeowners into low-balance properties. That's really interesting. So when you talk about new products, would it be, geez, I don't even know, would it just be some other form of debt security that in mass is easier to originate and therefore yeah. lower fees? Like what, what, What's an example of something like that? Well, there really isn't an example. There isn't a product yet. I think there have been some ideas out there about how to do this, but there really hasn't been, the innovation hasn't been there to create a small dollar product for mortgages that's different than a mortgage. And so, and, and, you know, just to, just to clarify a little bit too, there have been some loans done on properties at the low end of the market. And so we, we did do in our study, we did look at those mortgages that actually have didn't manage to get through and get done. We found that a lot of really interesting things about them, like you know they were they were fairly high cost, high fee loans when you look at them because they're mortgages, and so the fees and costs were kind of what what they would normally be on a mortgage loan. We did find that they were they tended to have higher interest rates, so that it seems that lenders may find them to be a little bit more risky, so they um, price up for them a little bit in rate. We found that the credit characteristics of the borrowers who got them were on par with any other size loans. So we did compare small loans that were made to larger loans and saw that the credit characteristics on those loans were, you know, were, were really the same. They were very, very similar to, you know, say a loan that was made for $350,000 versus the one that was made for $50,000. And then they also performed very well. And um, over time, those loans uh, didn't default at a, at a far greater rate than a regular traditional mortgage, even through the housing crisis. What small loans we were able to find and sort of track through the housing crisis when there was a lot of foreclosures happening across the board, we didn't see a, an increase or more um, of an issue in in the small dollar market. So those are some of the things that we took a look at. The The one area that we did find small loans were just far more severe in terms of um, losses that lenders might take is when there was um, a foreclosure or a default, um, something that we call loss severities. And the loss severities were far greater on small dollar lo- uh, loans than they were on larger loans. Um, and that has just a lot to do with the fact that those loans, because they were small, tended to get written off. And then you have this asset and they're just very costly for lenders if they have to service them and they do have to take the property back. But that was not happening at a very you know, in large numbers. So, so all that to say is that the, that the opportunities are there to really look at what a mortgage transaction currently is for any other price point and potentially look at where fees, um, sort of regulatory costs and other pieces of that, of that process and of the origination process could be removed to simplify the process. Appraisals is one thing that we always talk about as, as an area where there could be some costs taken out, but there's some other things as well that could make uh, small dollar transactions a little bit more feasible and attractive and possible and accessible for more people. Interesting. And another big focus of your piece was how so many of these barriers, uh, such as accessing small dollar loans, but also a lot of other stuff is is local and they vary based on you know the specific neighborhood that someone lives in. And I think that's just kind of an interesting observation because so much of the debate, well, I say that in a very general sense, a lot of people focus on national politics, right? And not so much on, on local issues. But mm-hmm. there's this one line that stuck out to me where you, you and your team wrote, understanding uh, local resident credit and income profiles uh, to gain insights into what might work at the local level. Uh, can help us better understand local barriers. And what, what struck me about that is not just that you're talking about local constraints, which I want to ask you about some examples examples of those, but also implied here is the idea that some people might not have traditional credit histories. And you know, if you don't have a credit score of 680, for example, you just don't check that box for a lot of banks issuing sort of a traditional mortgage. So what are some of these local barriers? Are there non- traditional approaches to assessing credit quality for individuals that might supplant your traditional FICO scores? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the things we were really talking about in that in that piece on, on local policy solutions, you know, some of the things we saw, and actually Detroit's a great example of this, where you'd like look at a market and you'd see affordable housing and you, you have to take a look at the population that's living in that in that geography and what are their, you know, what are their incomes? What are their credit scores? What are their, you know, what is what does their debt look like? What is going on with the people in that market? And what we were finding was that in a lot of cases, um, the credit profiles, incomes of individuals in a market just didn't necessarily match up with anything that was available from a lender that was serving that market. So the products and the people didn't match. And I think one of the things we, you know, we we kind of look at all the time now as you go a little bit more local, you know, what is the demographics, really understanding your market, really understanding what people are earning, um, what is the racial makeup of your market, what are the credit characteristics, who is not on the credit spectrum. And so this gets to credit invisibles, which is what you were just sort of describing. Um, there are over 40 million people in this country that don't have a credit score at all. They're not on the grid. Wow. A lot of them are millennials. I mean, think about, I, mean, I was talking to someone who was describing to me a situation where this young lady who just finished graduate school felt like she was ready. She had a great job, felt like she was ready to buy her first home, and then went to the bank to talk and to a real estate agent to talk about it. And they were like, you're absolutely not going to be able to do anything because you, you don't have credit. But she's like, wait, I've been renting for the last six years and I always pay my rent. I have my cell phone. I pay my cell phone bill. I pay all my utility bills, everything on time. My credit's perfect. Uh, none of those things are reported to a credit bureau. So while she has a cell phone, a rent, a high rent, as a matter of fact, she was living in a high rent market. You know, she has her her utility bills that she was paying, light and electricity and all that. All those things that she had been managing for the last almost 10 years didn't count and she had no credit score. So she was, while ready with an income and everything else that you would imagine, could not possibly get a mortgage because she didn't have a credit score. And you have to, you really have to keep that in mind when thinking about home ownership. I mean, you have to be on the credit spectrum. You have to have managed your credit wisely and not having a credit score has really been a barrier. And so your point on alternatives, um, yes, I think there are opportunities for us in this kind of new age of underwriting and technology to look at uh, new ways of, of looking at people's credit. And so you can take a woman like the one I just described who has a great income and has a great um, history of rental and really start to build based on her, maybe based on her bank statement and the cash flows and the way she pays her bills, you can start to build a different kind of way of assessing her risk so that she could qualify for a mortgage without a credit score. Uh, and there's a lot of people talking about um, alternative credit and ways of kind of doing that because that's kind of a the society in which we're living in now and kind of the, the way that technology has taken things and the way that millennials use credit. So I think it's a really important question. Hey, fellow founders, this is a, or potential founders, this is a, this appears to be a glaring gap in the market with a very old clunky way of doing things that could be disrupted for a lot of money on your behalf and a lot of social goods. So those of you with a tech brain that are looking for your next big thing, we know how to get you in touch with Elena here in case you want to follow up on it. Yeah. House 40 million people for market sizing. Yeah, no kidding. So, uh, and we're, we're Over, serious about yeah. that. If yeah, if you if you are if you want to go solve this problem, this is something we would love to help you with. The other problem that is addressed that I'm really interested in because it actually because unlike some of the other ones you mentioned, it gets a lot of attention is supply and construction. So, mm-hmm. you know, I I spend for better or worse most of my time in the cities of Boston, New York, San Francisco, and Seattle, perhaps the most overheated, you know, real estate city markets out there. And the thing that's always made me scratch my head is there's there's a there's kind of a conventional narrative that goes, well, of course, cities are expensive. They're just going to get more expensive because more rich people want to move there. And people with lower incomes are always going to get squeezed out. And you sort of scratch your head, you go, mm, I mean, this doesn't feel like that, like that level of simplicity of the narrative doesn't feel like it holds water to me because, you know, we had millions of people pour into New York in the 1800s and we just built up and you know the country is big it's a it's big right we've got a very big country and we have a very low total density compared to Europe so there's a lot of space there's more space like we can just build more stuff in more space and i guess what i what i don't understand is is there a good compelling narrative for 
hey, here's why all this construction is high-end construction. There, it seems we're building more buildings than ever, but they only seem to be getting more expensive. Like, where is all this demand? You know, if we just follow supply and demand, where is all this demand coming from on the one hand? And on the other, why the heck can't we find a way to create uh, sufficient supply to bring down, you know, either one, bring down the average cost of housing or two, you know, create create a, a market niche of housing that is, you know, lower cost. Yeah, so it's been, um, since the housing crisis, we have been really just insufficiently constructing property at the, at, you know, at where the market is. And and that, um, that problem has been one that's been um, tracked. But I mean, essentially, the cost to build property, uh, new properties has gone up uh, tremendously. And construction industry is grappling with, you know, all the different sort of constraints that come with needing to build when, you know, building new properties involves, you know, you need labor to be able to build them. They're having a lot of labor constraints and the immigration, you know, issues that we're facing as a nation right now um, are, are, are really being looked at as part of that problem. There is, you know, there is land costs a lot more now, a lot, uh, you know, a, a basic lot size costs a lot more money to, to to buy. And so you have the land, you start to develop the land, then you have all the materials, construction materials, labor, you know, lumber, steel, all these things. Again, you, you just getting to macroeconomic issues like, you know, tariffs and trade and things like that. Those are all affecting um, this industry. And so all of those things that make it more expensive to build a home instantly make it really difficult to build anything at the low end of the market. And so that's just not where the construction industry has been. And we're now finding ourselves in a situation where we have a mismatch between, like I said earlier, people and place, right? The, the supply just isn't matching um, wh- where the demand is and, and where people's incomes are and what they can actually afford. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's that's a real issue. And I think that's something that you know, a lot of folks are looking at like ways in which you might be able to do things more affordably and how you might be able to deregulate some of the the market for construction so that it can be more affordable to build to build housing at the low end of the market. Um, and that's it's a it's a tricky proposition. One of the things that um, we're hearing a lot about now is, you know, how might things like manufactured housing, um, prefab, modular housing, tiny homes, you know, you hear about all these different um, innovations where you're building housing in a factory and then shipping it out to a site um, as ways to potentially, you know, you know, solve some of this problem. But um, that that even has cost involved with it. And it's in some cases not as easy to do or as um, cost effective. So there's there's just a lot of issues there. Uh, the other thing that comes into play is the conversation about renovation. So we do have a lot of existing housing supply that's out there. Um, our infrastructure is getting old all across the nation. I think the average home is 45 years old in this country. And so we've really got you know this aging infrastructure issue. And as infrastructure conversations go on again at the national policy level, thinking about our housing stock as part of that is a really, really key effort that I think um, people should be thinking about as well. So those are, I just mentioned a bunch of macro things, but there's a lot, a lot to unpack in all that. But really, it's, it's very difficult to construct anything at the affordable level. And we need people and we have people, lots of people who are demanding affordability. Uh, and so there's no inventory for them. And that is also putting rent pressure on rents, making them higher because people aren't able to buy anything. So it's just a vicious cycle. Well, I, I have another macro question for you, but I'm going to ask it with a local flavor and, and the the spirit of the conversation. So I'm, I'm based in LA and we have a pretty serious affordable housing crisis. Mm-hmm. I think I've, I've read that we have like two months inventory for folks who, all that means is it would take Two months to sell the amount of houses that are on the market right now at the current rates, and and a lot of real estate folks would say that six months is sort of an equilibrium, if you want to call it that. And so the the debate that's going on here right now in LA is okay. How do we solve this problem? Clearly, but a lot of people are advocating for greater rent control in more areas. More trying to be neutral with all my wording here. Greater leniency with with rent control um, for local. Governments, meaning, you know, the city of LA, the city of Glendale, they can all kind of come up with their own policies. The idea of vacancy control has also been discussed, meaning if a tenant vacates 
their apartment, the the owner of the property can only raise the the rent so much, not necessarily to market rents. And you know, on the other side of that argument is okay. Well, we need to build more, and part of the problem is yeah, only high end construction is being built, and there's different arguments for both. But have you looked into that aspect of it? How I don't know, rent control compares versus providing more supply in certain markets? So um, I haven't personally, although there are lots of research institutions that have. I know that Turner Center out in at Berkeley for Housing Innovation has done a lot of work on rent control, particularly given what was going on um, around that topic in the state of California just earlier this year and late last year. I mean, one thing I would say is, you know, there is, again, these are it's hyper local issues, right? In terms of what what you're dealing with, and and in in LA versus um, kind of how these issues play out in other places. But I mean, I think I think there is you know something to be said for rent control. There's obviously something to be said for affordability and sort of subsidizing, and also figuring out how to make sure you're um, preserving affordability. Uh, and that's a big piece of what you were just describing. I mean, one of the problems is things are kind of affordable, but then someone leaves or moves. How do you ensure that that doesn't, you know, just kind of flip into regular market price? And how do you maintain the affordability that's on there? And 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 that is that is a conversation around housing preservation that's been happening. And how do you keep affordable housing affordable? Um, is a is a broader conversation. It goes well beyond rent control, obviously, but into home ownership as well, because we have. Um, a lot of scenarios now where home prices are, you know, they're not really monitored in a way that where you have affordable housing now, then you have all of a sudden something change in a market and it starts to gentrify prices and taxes and everything start to go up. And and then all of a sudden that neighborhood that was once very affordable um, is unaffordable to the people that had been there all along and folks are displaced. So, I mean, all of this is sort of a cycle that of, of issues and, and policy decisions that I think are really, really key. Um, and housing preservation, affordability of preservation, excuse me, preservation of affordability across the board for homeownership and rental are both really, really key things that we have to think about in the future. We can't just keep building, building, you know, and, and doing everything in a way that doesn't manage um, affordability long term because inevitably people end up getting um, displaced, removed, or have to move out because they cannot afford uh, what's happening in their in their communities. And frankly, we have seen this um, over the last you know 25 years alone. You can point to so many markets that have just exploded, and all it's doing is pushing people further and further out. It's, it's having an acute pro, um, you know um, impact on low and moderate income families, even middle class families, as well as minority families, Black and Hispanic families. One of the things I've I was thinking about when I was listening was kind of the the issue of you know buying versus buying versus renting as being an exacerbating factor here because you know mm-hmm. if if we had you know if we did not have this ownership gap like let's say we we already had you know fairly equitable distribution of ownership then you know gentrification could be a wealth creating opportunity for for some of the lower income or or lower you know originally lower property value owners because you know you'd you'd have a i don't know build an amazon tower and and suddenly a neighborhood wants a bunch of engineers in it and you know me who bought a you know who bought a house 20 years ago for $120,000 all of a sudden I get to sell it for 700 and and go somewhere else and i've created a lot of wealth here I guess what I'm thinking about is the, you know, the gentrification question of of sort of forcing people out. This it would seem to me this only this impacts renters, which due to the ownership gap, you know, disproportionately is impacting people of color and and obviously people of lower income. But does you know does gentrification as a problem go away if you know everyone who wanted to own a home owned a home they could just you know they own the property they could they can hold on to it if they want to or they can sell up if they want to ba- basically like does one of these problems solve the other is my question it's interesting i mean it's all i mean it's the the magic of markets right i mean so that so this is you know as i mentioned the the issue of constrained affordability for folks to move from renting to homeowning is only causing pressure on how much it costs 
to rent. And we have, you know, in particularly in if you look at black home ownership and black renters, the black home ownership rate is under 42%. The majority of, of uh, black households are renting households. And so if their rents are continuing to go up, I mean, just think about the cycle that that, that, that perpetuates. It's just right. it, the higher your rent, the rents, the har- harder it is to save. Then you also can't get access to credit. There's nothing available. The so low end, if you wanted to, you know, if your market had something available, um, affordable, it's just a it's just a vicious cycle that folks are getting into. And I think really locally, this is what this is what cities and and jurisdictions really need to be looking at is how how you can create a scenario where it's essentially what a healthy housing market should look like. And what you described would be um, very helpful, which is if you had the right mix of property available to meet the needs and demand that your community has, whether it's renting or owning, that cycle flow much more smoothly and folks wouldn't be as, as you know, displaced at as higher rate as what we've seen in some markets across the country. I think it's it's hard, right? It's, very, it's a very hard proposition to think about um, how to do that and what does a perfect housing market sort of look like? How do you keep affordable stock to meet the needs of, you know, we've got a huge population. I mean, millennials are, are gigantic. They're the biggest population um, or generation since baby boomers are bigger than baby boomers. So there's 75 million of them running around all at how, getting at household formation age where they're definitely renting and, and, and potentially moving into situations where they're looking to own. And we really haven't planned for that. I think we have a real situation in a lot of markets around the country where where the jobs are, where the housing is, and where the people are just isn't matching up. And then when you layer on top of that where incomes are and how incomes have been flat you know, or stagnant for, for some time, it just further exacerbates that that cycle. So again, it just gets back to how do you really sort of think about what is what a healthy housing market looks like? And then do you have a mismatch between your housing sort of demand and, and the supply that's available, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's renter, renter, you know, rental property or home ownership. We need both, but we need both to be, you know, in a situation or in a, in a place where it's affordable to either rent or to, to, your, where your housing isn't killing you <laughs> and crushing you every month. You're, you know, spending 50% of what you make um, in housing. And that's, that's crushing a lot of people right now uh, and making it really difficult for anybody to save and do anything meaningful for their bigger kind of broader long-term economic prosperity. I definitely want to put a pin in the idea of difficulty saving because I want to loop back to the idea of down payments. But first, you mentioned that black home ownership is about 42% in the country. Just as a point of comparison, do you know what it is for uh, white homeowners? Uh-huh. The white homeownership rate is around 65, 66% in 1960. The homeownership rate for whites today is closer to 70%. Oh. And has been stable at 70, around in and around 70% for like the last 30 years. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Black homeownership rate today is 41.2%, I believe. So it is lower today than it was 50 years ago when the Fair Housing Act was passed. So it used to be it used to be legal to discriminate against black people in their housing. It, it became illegal in 1968. And black homeownership rate today is lower than it was when discrimination was legal, which is crazy. Yeah. And despite Um, that, you mentioned in your paper that in 2018, I think there are still 4 million instances instances of housing discrimination. Yeah. I mean, there's the fair housing and even fair lending. And we, we definitely talk about that. It's something in the paper that we almost, we just kind of put it in here as foundational because you'd like to think in this day and age, 
you know, that we weren't talking about housing discrimination, but systemic barriers, systemic, you know, um, structural racism, those kinds of core things as you're trying to explain this gap, you know, why is there a 30 percentage point gap between black and white homeowners today, right? I mean, it's like you just, you have to kind of, when you start to unpack that and really look at all the different factors and variables that, that are factors or, or that are causing that gap, this is where you you, you sort of really you, you can't explain it all by just the pure variables that you would normally look at. You can't explain it all by income. You cannot explain it all by education uh, levels. You cannot explain it all by uh, by credit scores. Th- those are huge factors, but they're not the whole story. There's something else there, and you have to really look at, then at you know what are the structures in place, and uh, you know what are the barriers that are structural racism that um, that still persists in our systems, um, and that's those are just. Um, just unfortunate hard facts in 2019 to be talking about. Yeah. And since our our conversation and your paper did focus on the issue of inequality across races, I'm curious, and uh, I'm going to try to phrase this all as non-controversially as possible, because a lot of the topics we've talked about seem like they'd apply to most people who are suffering in conditions of poverty, uh, difficulty in accessing mortgages due to lack of credit history, difficulty in saving in order to uh, afford a down payment. Is there is there something specific for black homeowners or for the black population that makes it so difficult for them to own homes as opposed to just the the general struggle that people poorer folks would find in trying to acquire the home is do you have any idea if one there's something beyond the issue of poverty and if yes then two what might be causing that Yeah I mean I wish I had those answers handy I think I mean, what what we've been really trying to study and understand is, you know, where there where there are opportunities, and this isn't really about. I, I'm not connecting it as much to poverty, where whereas I'm connecting it to there are a lot of Black people in America that are doing really well and fine that can't access housing and homeownership, and that it's not an issue of their income of them being low income or in poverty. It's not an issue of them being uneducated. It's not an issue of them being unemployed. You know, it's it's those aren't the issues. It's and so there. That's where we just have been really kind of digging and scratching our heads, frankly, trying to understand these these really big differences. Um, when you look at it, particularly by age, I mean, the black homeownership rate for millennials is it's just they're way behind today than they than even you know earlier generations were, and it's significant because you know. Black are basically purchasing homes later in life. They're purchasing cheaper homes that are that have larger mortgage debts on them than whites, and they are also moving in and out of homeownership more than any other race. So we've sort of studied this, and we were fairly perplexed by some of it. When when you look at, and what I mean by that is just. Why this is a kind of homeownership sustainability issue, which is why are so many black families and households purchasing and then becoming renters again and then purchasing again? It's it's that is having a major impl- impact on their ability to um, build wealth. Um, a lot of that can be explained by what happened in the housing crisis because a lot of families lost their homes. Some of it is different. I mean, some of it has nothing to do with um, the foreclosure crisis. They didn't have foreclosures. And so we that's something we need to understand better because, as I mentioned earlier, the black home ownership rate is not going to improve just by putting lots of people into new homes, but keeping people in the homes that they're currently in is is and, and allowing them to sort of build equity and build wealth through that process is really a huge part of the picture as well. And so we really do focus a lot on sustainability as a matter here because uh, keeping people in their homes is key. It's it's key to the connection to wealth, key to a lot of things, and I think it's really important that we that, that we kind of continue to talk about that piece too, because it's not just it's not just about buying a new house. It's it's about keeping keeping your home as well. Yeah. So what you're what you're describing is in, is a very interesting vicious cycle, right? Yeah. And I'm sure people are aware of you know the the old like redlining um, and other legal behaviors that were used to keep the black community out of housing, at least the good parts of housing and, and yep. yeah, like le- legal, deliberate, systemic 
explicit mm-hmm. segregation. And what's what's interesting, of course, is that the is that just to bring this back for our listeners, home ownership and real estate ownership is one of the one of the surest fire ways to build intergenerational wealth. You know, the the intuition being, of course, that, look, if you're just paying rent, you're throwing your money in a hole. Whereas if you buy a house, now you have a house. And presumably, like in the future, someone could sell that house or at least not pay rent because they have the house. And so that having been blocked out has exacerbated issues of you know poverty in the black community and among, you know, other low income people of color. And so, you know, this this vicious cycle becomes hard to break, in particular, when there are all these other barriers that we've talked about. So some of them are structural racism that's still in society. Um, some of them are barriers to lower value mortgages, uh, lower dollar sign, you know, number, numbers of zeros mortgages. Um, some of them are the you know, lack of credit score. And some of them are increasing rents or increasing, you know, real estate value in big cities. And, you know, you think about, you know, the thing that we're always looking for is, is what's the big axe swing you can take to break the wheel right it's a very it's a very common thing i think in american politics these days that we're going okay we got this problem we want it solved i'm going to look to see what presidential candidate is talking about this problem and they're going to have a good two-liner on this and that good two-liner like that's going to do it right the end the end we've got it and what this round table is or this working group sorry is is describing is that there are there are a mix of systemic national and local issues that are all contributing to this. Um, and the solutions need to be both systemic national and local. But I want to I want to ask you to humor our desire a little bit for the one big axe swing. And it is this. If there was one big axe swing that you could take, if you could snap your fingers and make it true, that could have the that you think could have the biggest impact on closing this gap and obviously closing this gap in a, a positive way. Cause you could just like, I don't know, like take the, whatever the difference is, you know, 70 to 40 some odd percent and just like kick a bunch of people out of their homes, you know, a bunch of white people out of their homes and suddenly you'd have parity, presumably not what we want. So what is the big ax swing we could take to improve the home ownership rates for, you know, people of color and the black people or the black community in particular you know, if, if there, uh, if you could think of one and I know it goes against your instincts, but I want to see, I want to <laughs> see what we come up with. Yeah, totally goes against my, you know, just logic and reason and all those good things. Um, so, uh, because you, I mean, you know, the answer that it's really, really, there is not a silver bullet, so to speak. So I would start by, I don't know, you know, if you think about, kind of what's happened historically to get to the point where we have such deep segregation in our neighborhoods and just, you know, the lasting effects of redlining that continue to persist and exacerbate the black homeownership gap and the wealth gap overall. You know, one of the things that if you look at history happened in the past when there was discrimination, legalized discrimination, and and segregated communities were created, I mean, the government had explicit programs for um, helping white families become homeowners. They helped build the suburbs. They helped give um, white families FHA loans. You know, they were big um, housing projects that were built, big um, neighborhoods and communities and subdivisions in the suburbs were really built to help uh, white households move out of the inner city and into um, these communities. And, and these communities were explicitly unavailable for black to move into. And so not that I'm suggesting we repeat that, but what we might, I mean, one one thing I might look at first would be what might it take to, you know, to kind of, you know, help and support through maybe grants or tax credit programs or um, down payment assistance programs that would help Black and Latino families who have just been left behind at some level. I mean, that, that's just a fact that to help them build like that. So to help them get access to financing to help in a more um, concrete way to help them 
you know, get access to affordable homes. Maybe there's a home building program and maybe they're a part of construction, uh, construction, you know, like a, 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 a program that would allow for folks to, to build sort of like Habitat for Humanity where it's like sweat equity and such. But I, I just, I think there's, if there was some way to grab land and and build and construct something super affordable and then make the financing available in a very you know targeted way um and again the i mean, I, I don't i mean we're beyond the point where this is even probably possible but if there was one thing it would just be you you've got to figure out a way to if you're playing catch up and there's got to be some kind of i think explicit policy action taken to try to write decades of wrong and decades of disenfranchisement and decades of leaving behind a whole population of people that just haven't had the same, you know, there was a head start given. And I, I just think it's time to allow for some catch up. And I'm just, I don't know exactly where you begin with that, but that's maybe what I would look at as how was it done in the past? How was it done in the in the 60s, uh, in the 50s and 60s, when some of these communities were built and, and things were highly segregated and, and discrimination was legal? But But how do you, like, if you see how that was done, and how, what kinds of programs were they? They were actual federal programs. Are there federal programs that could be looked at and um, created today that would make sense for today's world that might help bring more parity and um, equality back to the equation when it comes to home ownership? I think a lot of that is very much in the reconsider ethos. We we don't always have the answers to these complex issues, and we certainly don't you know claim to, but working a little bit harder and trying to figure out what the right questions are to ask can point yeah. the research in the direction that it needs to. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I mean, and that's, that answer, you know, that might frustrate a lot of people, <laughs> but it's, it's, you know, it's, again, it's, there's not just one thing that you can do. And I appreciate like all the, I appreciate the fact that presidential candidates for 2020 are talking about housing because I got to remind you that that really hasn't happened since like George W. Bush like housing hasn't really been on the agenda. I mean, so it's it's a really, really kind of a big deal that, you know, the, the homeownership, the sort of housing supply crisis, the rental, renter crisis, uh, the affordability crisis, all those things from a housing standpoint are even being discussed in presidential campaign platforms. That's kind of huge for the housing industry. It's definitely something that we are um, taking note of and, you know, and really analyzing closely. And to, to to put just one more piece on that, not only are we hearing about housing, but we're also hearing about these historical, you know, these historical discriminatory sort of, you know, redlining, segregation, and sort of understanding how do we come to, how do we come to terms with this past of ours, and how do we do something to really help try to bring more economic parity to Black and Hispanic households? And I think that that is, you know, that's progress. And um, so it's great to see that on on an agenda. And then, you know, we'll see what happens from here because we all know how that how things go. And we don't know, you know, what's how things are going to shape up in 2020. But it's great to, to know that these are being that these are being thought about. Housing is so fundamental and everybody needs a place to live. And we have to your earlier point, we've got we've got the space in America to, to that we shouldn't have any homeless people and we should be able to solve these problems. And um, we certainly have the capital. Uh, we, we've got to figure out how to get ourselves organized and put it in the right places so we can solve this problem. So in your answer to Eric's last question, you mentioned FHA loans. and I'm glad because that lets me circle back to that, that other question that I pinned. And it's the last question that I have for you. One of the barriers that you mentioned in your paper is the difficulty in saving and getting that down payment, which really is kind of like the price for entry into the housing market. And you know, one of one of the solutions to that is things like an FHA loan. And for folks unfamiliar with that, it's just a three and a half percent down payment. And in exchange, you need to go through more paperwork and get mortgage insurance so that the lender is covered uh, because the less that a person puts down up front, the greater the risk for the lender. So of course, that's also that risks increasing systemic risk. I mean, one of the problems uh, that led to 2008 was mortgages were a little too easy to get. People who, you know, maybe shouldn't have had have had mortgages uh, had them, or maybe they had multiple mortgages and they should have only had one. So, at at a local level, and bringing it back to sort of the the community level, how should neighborhoods or localities go about? balancing that risk between providing an easier path to wealth accumulation 
versus the risk that comes when there is more debt floating around in the market? Yeah, I mean it's that's a it's a it's a good question. I think there's a couple things I would say. The Federal Housing Administration and the FHA insurance program um, is a critical program for low and moderate and minority communities, and it has been for a long time. It's actually it is the program that you know 50 years ago plus was helping white families get financing and get into their you know get into their first homes many many years ago, um, where they could begin building that equity in their in their properties. And today, it, it disproportionately serves Black and Latino families. So the the vast majority of loans that are made today to Black and um, Hispanic households um, are FHA loans, and and it does provide a low down payment option, as does the Veterans Administration. I think everybody knows about the VA housing program. It's also an insurance program for veterans um, and active military who can get in with 0% down, and that's a very, very um, successful program that a lot more people are taking advantage of these days. And, you know, I would just suggest that a couple things. One is that low down payment lending has really come a long way from the crisis. A lot of the programs and products that were really taking off during the kind of the boom period before the bust happened. So leading up up to, to 2008, so like in the 2004 to 2006, seven period, there's a lot of private investment. There was a lot of non-traditional programming happening outside of FHA, VA, and the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac also have loan on payment programs. A lot of that business was really high risk, risky program types, um, you know, adjustable rate mortgages, for example, that had like ridiculous resets. So people's payments went up to, to amounts that they couldn't afford. Those There was a lot of really bad products that were um, subprime often and dangerous products. And, and a lot of Black and Latino families were um, targeted for those products. And a lot of people were, were profiting from, from that by, by basically making those products, but not taking on really a lot of the risk. Um, so they made a fortune and then, um, and then everything collapsed. So, um, and then families lost everything. So I think, you know, today we're in a much safer lending environment. Um, low down payment lending programs have really evolved to the point where, you know, we, the, the, the median down payment on a house that's purchased in the U.S. over the last few years is 5%. There's still a lot of people out there that think you need to have 20% down. And so I think there's some perceptions that are continuing to be you know, you know, challenged and people are learning a little bit more about what it really takes. So a lot of people are sitting on the sidelines that can afford to buy a house simply because they don't think they can save the 20% that's necessary. And we all, we just talked about earlier how hard it is to save these days. If you think you need 20% down, you're, you know, that can take you 10 years, 20 years to, to build up for a house in the, in, in, in markets around this country. So, so that's just something that's a turnoff to people and they, they're just not trying. And I think it's really important that folks know you can get into a house for zero down if you're a veteran. 3% down with Fannie and Freddie, 3.5% with FHA. Uh, and that's a, that's a, and those programs are really safe. They're typically fixed rate mortgages and they're, um, and it's, it provides a stability in the payment that, that you're going to pay for the next 30 years. You're going to know what your housing payment is. You're going to have that stability. And I just think that's a really, really important thing. And then we can just add on the fact of the kind of local context right now, which is, interest rates are really low. So it really can make for an affordable um, housing payment if you're able to get into a mortgage at this point in time. So so I just say all that to say that I think there's a lot of misperceptions about what you need to put down on a house. A lot of the lending programs, the government insured programs and the um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac programs have low down payment options. People should be looking for those. And then also, you know, the, the risk associated with those programs in and of themselves, when you look at people's credit and their income and everything else, you know, it, th- th- that's all, that all needs to be evaluated. But we're in a, in a much more stable place, especially with our consumer protections that the CFPB have put in place and that Dodd-Frank has put in place. And we have to make sure that we stay vigilant in making sure to, that consumers are protected and that we don't see um, another subprime market rise or, you know, the, the prolifer- proliferation of those terrible products that we saw in the past and that, that we're doing a lot safer lending. And I can tell you that right now, since the crisis, the lending that's happening in the mortgage space is the safest lending we've ever seen. That's a bit of good news to get us close to wrapping <laughs> things up. Yeah. Not what I was expecting to hear, which is great. So it's one of those things that, oh, man, maybe we are able to to learn some lessons from terrible mistakes of the past. 
I'm not used to hearing good news anymore. Wow, yeah, I'm not used to. I'm not usually the deliverer <laughs> delivering good news. Everyone's always pretty depressed after I talk. So yeah, that's great. I'm glad. I mean that, but but it is true. And I mean we we've been we kind of follow you know what default like how loans are performing very closely and defaults. I mean are at the lowest they've been um, pre pre crisis. I mean so you know right now lenders are making phenomenal loans and a lot of them are down low down payment loans and the and the risk on them are are very low and i think there there is still room and we talk about this we have something called the housing credit availability index which is a quarterly report that we put out that just kind of monitors how lenders are lending basically are are they making credit available to as many people as possible that that makes sense when you look at it compared to historical standards and right now um, we believe that there's still a lot of room for lenders to do to open up the credit box and do more lending. There's a lot of opportunity to do that. The lending is very, like I said, it's just on the safer side now, and there's an op- there, there's definitely room to open up the credit box. So when you're looking at credit scores going a little lower, not so bad if you have um, a great income to support that. I mean, there's a lot of things that we just kind of need to get back to some fundamentals, and I think there's a lot of opportunity to open up the box, and that that means serve more low to moderate income, more black households more Hispanic uh, households as well. Before we go, we always like to have a bit of a parting thought, but before we, but what I want to make sure is that Elena, you get the opportunity to have a parting thought for our listeners. Um, Cause I know we've been, we've been sort of run, you know, curating what gets talked about with our questions, but uh, is there anything else you want to share with reconsider listeners uh, before we let everyone go today? Sure. I think, first of all, thank you to both of you for Xander and Eric for talking about this issue. Um, it just doesn't get enough attention in my in my book. So my I guess my parting thought would be that this is a really serious and we are kind of at the epicenter of a major crisis when it comes to housing in America. And as I have said, housing is so fundamental to every single human being in our country, that it is, uh, it should be a, a top five issue. And people maybe don't think about it because it's just sort of what they do every day. It's there, but think about your, you know, the stability and the importance of having stable housing across the board, no matter what your income is, no matter what your race is, no matter what city you live in. You know, I, we got to keep talking about this. We've got to elevate the conversation on housing. And we have a serious, serious problem uh, when you have homeownership gaps that are 30 plus percentage points um, between black and white homeowners. You have a wealth gap that continues to grow where, you know, the average white household is 10 times more wealthy than a black household. There are, you know, income inequality issues. Unemployment in America is doing really, really great right now. But when you look at black unemployment, it's still double, 50% more than white unemployment. There is something there that we have to keep our eye on because I feel like as a society, if we don't work on economic equality, racial equity together, um, it just, it just, it doesn't, it's not good for the whole. You can't just pretend that that's not there or just watch, you know, neighborhoods or certain communities um, deteriorate around us because that eventually affects everyone. And I just feel like we have to kind of keep our eye on the ball, which is why, again, I'm really excited going into a 2020 election cycle that this topic of homeownership, wealth, wealth inequality, racial equity are all going to be key topics on the agenda for um, for the presidential um, candidates. And I'm hoping that we can see some plans and some progress in on all fronts. And my parting thought to add to that is that, you know, obviously, Americans get to vote at a national level, but once every two years, one thing we I think we try to bring up at least every now and then here is that so much of the work on these really sticky issues is being done at the local level. And mm-hmm. if you're involved in your local government or want to be involved in your local government, uh, you've walked away from this and said, hey, this sounds really important. This affects me. This affects people or people near me. I want to get involved. You know, the Urban Institute is one of many think tanks that's putting out great stuff. And it's not always easy for local government who 
you know, don't have a giant research organization of their own mm-hmm. to be able to easily get access to this, right? Be able to find it out there in the ether and know like, ah, this is the thing that we should be grabbing onto and learning from in order to create solutions here locally, or they may not even, you know, be getting started at it. So those of you who want to get involved in your local community, the link to um, all of Elena's work, but specifically, you know, these findings is going to be on our show notes. And those of you who are thinking, what, me get involved, like you would be shocked at what will happen if you send an email to your city councilor or, you know, or town alderman or whoever it is and say, hey, I would love to come stop by and see if I can help think about fixing housing. I read this report and listened to this podcast. I think it'd be really helpful. You'd be shocked at how likely you are going to be to get a positive reply because most people don't bother. Most people don't go out of the way. So that's option one for those of you who want to help and option two for you entrepreneurs out there. This looks, this really sounds like, you know, both from what we're hearing from Elena, from the report and the other research we're doing, that it's a market that's very ripe for disruption. And that's a lot of, you know, kind of outdated ways of doing things that have created unnecessary barriers that, you know, won't solve all the problem. But, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to go build the thing that's going to help people take the next step in this. So obviously there's a, there's a lot of work to be done, but a ton of opportunity to not just sit here on the sidelines and, you know, think of politics as entertainment, but to actually get involved and help. So I hope that, you know, Elena has inspired you in the same way that she has us about the potential to be involved at a local level or to attack one part of this, you know, this problem that I think before this report to me and Xander was very amorphous and big and hard to get our arms around and just kind of bad, right? And the kind of thing that gets broken down into very simple terminology, such as, oh, there is gentrification, there is racism, there is, you know, high housing costs, whatever the one liner here is, you go, well, what do I do about that, right? When we start to see a lot of these challenges broken up into constituent parts, constituent root causes, constituent potential solutions, it comes a lot easier to get involved. That's one of the reasons we were so excited about the support and speaking to Lena in particular, obviously brilliantly broken down and, and, and like incisive and clear. So Elena, before we go, just want to say thank you so much for the work you do. And of course, for spending time with us and our listeners. Uh, this was a, you know, it's really wonderful having you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys covering this topic. Again, it's absolutely critical to get involved locally. The federal policy and the president of the United States is not going to solve housing. It's definitely a local issue. So I really appreciate you highlighting that as well. And I really thank you guys for having me. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.